Hey everybody, Pillar producer Kate Oliveira here. J.D. and Ed recorded this episode on Thursday, the day before the Supreme Court officially released its decision in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. This episode does not address the Dobbs decision, but we will have an episode next week all about it. Thanks, everyone. This episode of The Pillar Podcast is brought to you by Seton Home Study School, an accredited school assisting homeschooling parents with an academically excellent and authentically Catholic curriculum. To learn more, go to seatonhome.org. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner coming at you live from an undisclosed location. It's not a bunker. It's not Air Force One flying around the planet. Um, or maybe it's both. I don't know. He doesn't know. None of us know. But Ed is coming to us from his summertime undisclosed location for this week's episode of the Pillar Podcast. Ed, how goes it out there in your secret vacation spot? Uh, it's it's fabulous, J.D. I have... I'm having the time of my life. It's been, um, I, we, we actually, I'm, I'm staying at, uh, my, my mother's family, my grandmother's, uh, fishing cabin, uh, somewhere in the wilds of Western Pennsylvania. And you give so much away, man. Look, after last year, when you basically goaded all of the listeners and readers into trying to dox me in exchange for t-shirts, I now take it on faith that people are going to respect my, my privacy up here. That's right. Um, if you're a new listener to the Pillar Podcast, if you didn't listen to us last summer, first of all, welcome. Second of all, Ed, uh, you know, is a man who loves his privacy. And so Ed uh, and his wife and the baby make it a point during the summer to uh, get away to a, 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 a lovely looking, I mean, you and I are zooming together and I could see a really lovely looking fishing uh, cabin in, uh, in, in Western Pennsylvania where they spend a couple of weeks. You know, Ed still works. You're not sort of not working, but you're working in a more beautiful place. Uh, I am. I, I'm working better. You are. This is, you know, this is, you're doing great right now. You have had a, you've been up there for the week and you have had a great week of production. And it's amazing when you're at the cabin, I notice that you get a lot of work done pretty early in the day because you want to get off and do other cabiny things. But, you know, you could call it a day relatively early on all the days if you work that hard when you're at home. Uh, that's true, but I, it's not a conscious decision. It's the, look, the the combination of lake air, spring water, um, the the sort of vividness of the colors, the, you know, the world up here, it, it, it inspires you to, mm. to work harder, to be more productive. I mean, I'm, I'm looking out the window now and I'm seeing a lovely Mennonite family making their way across the road. I mean, they're, they're, they're hardworking, God-fearing folk around here, J.D., and I see. one feels inspired to emulate them. And I like to think I'm inching my wife just a little bit closer to saying yes to literally buying the farm and, you know, never coming back. I have long encouraged you to move there. Um, but listen, we have... Listen, first of all, listeners, Ed's going to tell us a cool story about being um, at, at the farm in Western Pennsylvania. So if you're the sort of person who leaves reviews about our podcast... Um, criticizing the mindless prattle, which we call uh, the quote unquote mindless prattle, which we call um, banter and which many people know and love. First of all, this may just not be the show for you. But second of all, you may wish to fast forward a little bit because Ed's going to, while, while, uh, while enjoying a, a, a Coors original banquet beer here on the podcast, Ed's going to tell me a cool story and tell you a cool story too. So again, if you don't like the chit chat, I guess fast forward or maybe just find a show with um, less personality. You know what I'm saying? 
There's we have a lot of personality on this show. We I like to think do especially when you're at the undisclosed location. Ed, you're wearing a camouflage hat right now. That's a cynical grump. It is a it is a camouflage hat. It's a cynical grump. I'm going to take a screenshot of it. I'm probably going to use that as the photo for the uh, for the show this week. That hat is the basis of of a story that you told me earlier this week, and that I asked you to tell on the podcast. Is it not? Put your head down so I can take a nice photo here. There you go. Okay, great. I am wearing a camouflage baseball hat, and it does say cynical grump. And I mean, I wear uh, I wear a lot of camouflage when I'm up here, um, <laughs> both for you know practical and security reasons, but also because if you don't wear any camouflage, people tend to make assumptions about your political beliefs and personal preferences. And you know, I I like to blend in. JD, I'm a man of the people, and I'm most particularly a man of these people when I'm up Let here. Let it never so. not be said that you are a man of the people, Ed. Let that never. Absolutely. Said. And these are my people, uh, as I will explain. But it does say cynical grump on it. It's because uh, just over a year ago when we were um, we were getting what I would call some... Less than uh, a year ago when we reported on location-based hookup app data that indicated that the General Secretary of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops was engaging in um, problematic, prospectively immoral sexual behavior while, while occupying his office and frequenting um, the kinds of establishments which are... Uh, which are not consistent with the clerical state, we got some guff. We we think that was important reporting. We stand by it. We're proud of it um, because we care about good governance in the life of the church. But we got some guff from secular media outlets like the New York Times, the Washington Post, um, and NBC News, and many others. Yes, and anyway, in in a in one of the um, frank assessments of our personal characters and professionalism <laughs> that was because published... a profile was written about us in the in the Washington Post, was it not? Yes, uh, it was one of several that was written. It was an, in, it was an interesting profile because, of course, the profilee didn't, um, we didn't agree to be interviewed, so the profiler effectively wrote profiles of us based upon uh, more or less our social media personalities. Yes, and I was described therein as a cynical grump, which I I let pass. I thought that was fair comment. <laughs> um, uh, they, they did apologize for, for the outrageous libel that I was from New Jersey. <laughs> they did issue a correction for that, for which I'm grateful. Um, so well done to them. But anyway, some friends and former colleagues of ours had the, this hat made for me, to say cynical grump, in, in honor of that uh, portrayal in, in the Washington Post. So anyway, I was wearing the hat uh, up here, as I tend to do, as I said, because camouflage is very derogatory. And it was of an evening. The child had gone to bed. My wife was reading a book, and I was sort of pottering around. Uh, being enthusiastic about things as I tend to do up here. And it was suggested to me that if I wanted to improve the experience for those around me, I might consider taking a walk on my own. And mm -hmm. uh, so I did, and I ended up at the local this dive bar. This was suggested to you by Mrs. Mrs. Yes. Condon? Yes. So I took a walk, and I ended up at the local dive bar, and I sat down at the rail, and I was chatting to the guy next to me, and he noticed my hat, and it, this was on a Monday, uh, the Monday after Father's Day, and he asked me if it was a Father's Day present that I'd received, and I said, no, although that would have been appropriate, it wasn't. And I explained that some friends of mine had had it made for me because a newspaper called me a cynical grump. And he laughed and thought that was funny and uh, asked me what newspaper. And I think he was expecting me to name a, a more local. This was a fellow in the bar, basically, public. laughing at your hat. Yes. At, you said the newspaper called me a cynical grump. The fellow laughed, asked you what newspaper, and you told him. And I said, well, actually, the Washington Post. And um, he he let out an exclamation, which I won't repeat, but uh, it was friendly incredulity is how I would characterize it. And so go ahead and repeat uh, it. And we'll bleep it because I want to know. Uh, he said my <laughs> was actually. What he said. Oh, I'm sorry. We bleeped that because you missed it. And it was funny. 
Um, but anyway, he, he proceeded to then fact check me on his phone at the bar. Uh, and, and I realized that a hush had filled the bar. He basically he looked so up the coverage of us and specifically you because you were in the bar. Yes. And he, he confirmed uh, that the, I was described by the Washington Post as a cynical grump. And uh, he <laughs> further discovered that similar disobliging things have been said about me by other and you um, about other, by other publications, including the New York Times and Time magazine and the New York Post and things. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I got worried, as you might expect, you know, that I, I might fall foul of public opinion in this place that I that I drink every year. Well, or um, that your whole evening was going to be about sort of. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, on the contrary, though, when it became apparent that uh, I had, in fact, been criticized by the Washington Post and the New York Times, I, I found I couldn't buy a drink. Um, I, I was suddenly drinking for free and I was something of a hero. They didn't actually engage in the substance of the critiques of our characters or the coverage that we had done. They didn't to want it. to talk about like the pillars coverage of good governance no, in the life of the church. They couldn't have cared less. The fact that I was, um, I'd come in for criticism by these particular, by the Washington uh, outlets, Post, New York Times. And yeah. May, meant I must clearly be a good person. And, <laughs> and suddenly I couldn't buy it. I was in Coors Banquet and Wild Turkey all night. And wow. it was pretty great. Wow. That sounds, that's, that's pretty cool, man. That's, that's really, that's pretty cool. I, I didn't mind it. I can tell you it was all right. Yeah. It's in, I, I, I don't like, um, being, being known, uh, you know, at all. But if, <laughs> if that's, if that's, the, if that's the way in which I'm going to be known, I, they, that played pretty well for me. Yeah. It's an interesting affirmation of the, uh, it, it is an interesting affirmation of the, uh, the disconnect between um, large uh, that often exists between sort of large media outlets and um, and the people to whom they um, who, who they would say are inclusive in their audience, although really are not inclusive. Their, I mean, it's just an interesting affirmation of the sort of broad social. Dis Forget it. I don't need to talk about that. Anyone with with eyes can see. But it's funny as hell is what it is, and it's a cool story. Yes. And I'm glad you shared it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, good. Um, I'm sorry I missed that. To be perfectly honest, I'm sorry I missed that because I, I would have liked that to have happened to me too. I think the Washington <laughs> we can get you a hat. Well, the problem is I think the Washington Post referred to me as like a goofy, affable dad, which I suppose is fine. They but, did, yeah. Um, but that on a hat isn't going to get you, isn't going to get you the same reaction, is it? No, it probably doesn't provoke quite as many questions. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Well, uh, very cool. Very glad to hear it. There's a lot happening in the life of the church right now, and uh, we're going to talk about that. So let's get ready for it. Are you ready for it? I certainly am. If you fast-forwarded through the banter, well, you missed something, but now's a good time to come back, although you won't know it because you won't be late. Okay, Ed, uh, this Sunday uh, this Sunday began, uh, this Sunday past um, was uh, the solemnity of the most holy body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, i.e. Corpus Christi, um, and this Corpus Christi was a particularly important, special, and interesting one in the life of the Church in the United States because it was the kickoff for the Eucharistic Revival, a three-year project of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops which is aimed at inculcating, encouraging, and engendering Eucharistic faith among Catholics, a greater faith and devotional commitment to the Eucharist. And so one of the things that I noticed that I thought was really quite cool is that um, it would be hard to put data on this because I don't think it's sort of a statistic that is annually collected, but the number of Eucharistic processions seemed way up. Many um, clerics reached out to me and told me that there were more Eucharistic, and lay people too actually, just reached out to me and told me that there were many more Eucharistic processions in their diocese than were typically, and uh, you know, at many parishes which typically didn't have them or things like that. I suspect you heard the same, and that's kind of a cool I mean, it's just about three minutes old, and it's already kind of a cool uh, fruit of the Eucharistic uh, Congress, is it not? 
Yeah, definitely. And also I noticed, um, I, I noticed that I heard an experience for myself that the, the preaching on Corpus Christi this year was, was up a notch. I found over last year, I often, um, I will hear, or I will hear from other people who have heard, you know, for example, homilies on the real miracle is sharing, or the real presence of Jesus is in French. I've never heard that kind of thing. Oh, I have. Yeah. Uh, boy, have I. Yeah. But anyway, this year, I uh, I, I heard a, a homily preached on the the real presence that was excellent and inspiring, um, and, and I heard the same from a lot of people, that they said that this year... I, many of them hadn't made the connection to the launch of the Eucharistic revival, but said, you know, wow, the, the homily this Sunday was really great, I, you know. So I, I think it's true, and I think that, I mean, this is the, in addition to sort of programs of formal events, um, increased things like you were saying about Eucharistic processions, things like that, I think one of the, hopefully one of the real benefits of the Eucharistic revival will be almost an intangible like this, just a, a greater appreciation for and a, a delving into the depths of what the church actually teaches, what the church actually knows the Eucharist to be, and how transformative that is for anyone in the church who chooses to approach the sacrament, sort of you know more fully aware of, of what they are what they are receiving, what the true gift of this sacrament really means. Uh, I had some time in adoration around that, and it's you know. Um, I, I don't get a lot of time for Eucharistic adoration. I, that's not true. I shouldn't say that. I believe I you mean you don't make a lot of time. Yes, that is true. I normally make. Um, I don't make. I am. I am normally gifted. It would be funny uh, if you were like. Hour. Usually, I just make a morning holy hour and then an evening holy hour. And I, I know that's <laughs> not. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not the case. But no. I. I mean, once a month, I. I. I do have a a, a good holy hour. But, um, you know, I had a. I had a. A bonus round uh, last weekend for Corpus Christi, and it was really, it was really helpful. It was really beautiful to, you know, I, I, I am ever more conscious the older I get that my, my conversion, my hope of heaven, all of that increasingly hinges on actually taking the Eucharist seriously, taking it as seriously as it is. And it's definitely a work in progress with me, but it's, it, it's one I hope to make progress with, and it's one that is only being assisted by the reality of this Eucharistic revival. Yeah, thanks be to God. Um, I'm glad to hear that. One one of the things that I um, have been doing, uh, sort of from I suppose as a matter of spirituality, or or actually one of the things that I've been doing to know better how to think about the notion of the Eucharistic revival and how to think about how we should cover it and talk about it and just even just as Catholics engage in it is that I I started reading again Ecclesia de Eucharista, which is a an encyclical of John Paul II, one of his if not his last encyclical, one of his last encyclicals. Uh, have you read it? Have you read it before? I have read it before, but it's it's been some years. Ecclesia de Eucharist is a very um, sort of scriptural meditation on the place of the Eucharist in the life of the Church. That sort of draws from um, draws through all of the images of uh, the Eucharist, all of the sort of prophetic images of the Eucharist in Scripture, and then the place of the Eucharist in the New Testament. And one of the things that I have been um, just reflecting upon is is the way that the Church has been talking about the Eucharistic revival. And I suppose f- far be it for me to offer um, a suggestion, although um, I guess that's what we do. Uh, uh, one thing that I have noticed is that much of the um, much of the conversation about Eucharistic faith in the context of the Eucharistic revival has been about sort of individual belief in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, the sacramental presence of Christ in the Eucharist, and 
individual devotion to the sacramental presence of Christ in the Eucharist and things like Eucharistic adoration and holy hours and those kinds of things. And and even in sort of greater sort of spiritual participation in the holy sacrifice of the Eucharist in the Mass, which is the fruit of a, of a deeper belief and can be the fruit of a deeper belief in the Eucharist and is certainly a fruit of greater Eucharistic devotion and piety. And, you know, that makes sense. The Mass is the source and summit of the Christian life. The Eucharistic sacrifice, Lumen Gentium says, is the source and summit of the Christian life. And Benedict XVI talked really very beautifully about the way in which Eucharistic piety and devotion and even sort of Eucharistic sort of faith in the doctrine of the Eucharist prepares us for the Mass and helps us to better unpack the graces of the Mass. That if we spend time in the presence of the Lord in the Blessed Sacrament, as I'm blessed to do, um, you know, with some degree of regularity, then we are sort of spiritually strengthened so that we might better participate in the Mass, because of course the Mass is indeed the source and summit of the whole thing. And then summit, that the Mass is so filled with grace, that there's just so much grace at the Mass, so much profound and powerful stuff happening, that spending time in, in the presence of the Eucharist, sort of post-Mass, and that doesn't have to mean like right after Mass, but sort of post-Mass time in the presence of the Eucharist, like helps us to sort of spiritually uh, unpack and better make use of that grace, helps that grace to better manifest in our lives. I think all that is, is true, right? That all of our own interior life is is oriented in a certain way towards the source and summit of Christian prayer, if it's the source and summit of the Christian life, which is to say the, the Holy Sacrifice and Mass Eucharist. So all of that is good. I'm glad for all of that conversation. But there's another sort of thing that I have been thinking about in terms of sort of talking about the Eucharistic revival um, and its fruits in the life of the Church and its importance in the life of the Church. And it's one of the things that John Paul sort of emphasizes in Ecclesia de Eucharista, which is that the Eucharist is a catalyst of genuine, real, uh, human communion. That the Eucharist, and I'm not trying to sort of say, well, the vertical dimension of the Church is more important or something like that, but that the Eucharist really does, like, build up the Church, um, build up the body of Christ, and, like, build unity a- a- among the body of Christ, um, and that is a fruit of the thing that I think we can can look for. The seeds of disunity, which daily experience shows to be so deeply rooted in humanity as a result of sin, are countered by the unifying power of the body of Christ, the former Holy Father says. The Eucharist, precisely by building up the Church, creates human community. I, I was struck by that because, like, at this sort of time, when there, like, when there is so much sort of obvious and profound or fractious culture, or maybe even a profound lack of culture in, in American life, but also when there's such a sort of fractious situation in the church in the United States and more globally, when there are, you know, real stark, sharp theological divisions, when it's a period of difficulty and unrest for a lot of people, when we talk to a lot of priests who say that these past few years have been a few years of sincere sort of um, uh, difficulty or lack of, you know, or low morale in, in among presbyterates, all, all of which are things that we've experienced and seen and talked with people about. While the Eucharistic revival may have been sort of intended to sort of build up this sort of intellectual understanding of the Eucharist or this sort of faith virtue of the Eucharist, that it may well be providential that the fruit of the thing could be at least, I think, a healing of the divisions that are damaging the, the body of Christ, the church in the United States right now, even among sort of the Episcopate. I, I, I wonder if in a certain way there we can look for a fruit beyond those things which have sort of been stated as, as intended aims. I, I think that's a very, I don't want to say realistic hope, but I think that's 
um, that would make sense that a Eucharistic revival that takes itself seriously and implants itself deeply in, in the church in the United States would have necessarily that, that side effect. Because if you are aware that you are truly in the presence of Christ in the sacrament, then there comes with that understanding and that appreciation, um, you know, the, the, the second law, which is, you know, the first law is to love God, the second law is to love your neighbor. And the impulse to love one's neighbor in the true presence of Christ in the Eucharist is, I think, a, a natural follow-on, that if we have this truth, all of our human relationships should be ordered um, in line with that truth. And the truth is that God loves us so profoundly, so miraculously, so truly in this way, have we not a special obligation to love one another? And, you know, the, the U.S. bishops have had their um, retreat together um, right now, and they've been hearing, uh, I have heard preaching on unity from, from Archbishop Fisher, and it would not surprise me at all if in the context of, you know, the, the Eucharistic revival kick, kicking off that these two themes of the Eucharist and unity were not um, something that uh, went, in, I, went in the ears at the same time for the bishops. And, and hopefully, you know, as you say, that their, their relationship can appear at times uh, fractious and publicly so. But, you know, you, you would like to think that they, they are all meeting um, and all meet with the commonality of the faith. And there carries with that um, love and unity, that these are, these are the moral miracles of the church. Yeah, I think I like the way you put that, because I think it's important that we talk about what unity is not, um, and even what sort of Eucharistic unity is not. Eucharistic unity does not mean all the bishops who profoundly sort of disagree with one another go to adoration together and have like a nice sort of fervorino from a preacher or a nice kind of emotional experience of a beautiful liturgy and sort of come out and slap each other on the back and say, well, isn't it nice to be brothers without um, any kind of reconciliation of, of profound divergency? It also doesn't mean sort of unif un uniformity of mind. Like unity is not sort of um, a, a vanilla kind of anodyne um it's not homogenization. Yeah, homogenization, thank you, uh, of all things. But the Eucharistic revival, I think, has the capacity to sort of, uh, or at least is an invitation, maybe that's the best way to put it, an invitation for um, a theological conversion, which is a sort of um, uh, an understanding of the Church as communion um, stemming from the Eucharistic communion at the center of the life of the Church, rather than an understanding of the Church as sociological phenomenon or tribe or... Um, or these kinds of things, an understanding of a centrality of the Eucharist in sort of um, in sort of pastoral theology is one which emphasizes um, repentance, reconciliation, conversion, and transformation. That repentance and reconciliation precede the unity that comes in the Eucharist and are therefore spiritual goods that ought to be encouraged and encouraged sort of ab initio. That um, unity is born out of orthodoxy, orthopraxy, and the probity of life or desire for. Um, uh, for holiness in life, that you know, true unity is born out of the, the universal is, is is found in in the pursuit of the universal call to holiness, rather than sort of um, a set of ends for the church, which are different from that. And that that I say those things, maybe they I don't know, maybe they sound really, um, maybe it sounds really naive to think that the <laughs> that the that there would be ecclesial unity surround centered on those things. 
or maybe to some people it sounds like, well, of course, everyone in the church sort of, or every bishop in the church sort of holds those things. I don't think there's evidence that sort of every bishop in the church sort of has those things as the center of his theological or pastoral paradigm. Uh, on the contrary, I think there's evidence to the opposite of that, um, and that there's a, that there is uh, that there is often a sort of verti- um, uh, ho- horizontality, a sort of um, sacramental uh, horizontality, um, which is to say that the that the Eucharist, the Mass, is looked at as mostly being a thing of us being together instead of a thing of us being together in sort of common worship and, and oriented towards um, towards the transcendent, the transcendent reality of, of God. Um, so I don't think there's evidence of that. In fact, I think the debates about the Eucharist last year gave evidence to the contrary, that there are widely disparate views among the American bishops on what the Church is and what it's for and what it means to um, to live the faith. And Actually, there are excesses and problems uh, with uh, with with those views, probably in many different directions. But while it might be sort of Pollyannish, I also think maybe it's just an expression of Christian hope to think that a, a period of time sort of centered on the centrality of the Eucharist in the life of the Church could be a mechanism of conversion or renewal through the Holy Spirit beyond what is um, beyond what might be sort of expected at a human level. And I have an example of that. But go ahead. Oh, as I say, I don't think it's Pollyannish at all. In fact, I think it's uh, it's a necessary kind of Christian hope to have. But I mean, the other thing is, when the church preaches, it preaches to itself first. Yeah, that we all need to constantly hear the truth that the church articulates. And I see no reason why to be scandalized by the fact that this can include sometimes bishops. Yeah, yeah, it can include priests. No, no more, no less frequently than it includes members of the lay faithful. That we all can have our um, priorities and appreciation uh, for the the theology of the church and the reality of the sacraments distorted at times, and not to say distorted as in you know no, this is a manifestly heretical belief or whatever, but just to say that you know you you get carried away in one direction, you pull yourself away from the true center of everything, and I see no reason to not hope that in a period, for example, of the Eucharistic revival, that you know the bishops won't rightly see themselves as preaching first and foremost to themselves, as we all, you know, should look for in, in the announcement of any of the church's teaching. That, you know, we are we are teaching ourselves, and there's nothing wrong with that. Right. There's nothing scandalous about the need for that. Indeed. That's just part of the reality of the church's life. Indeed. Dare we hope, Condon, um, that all bishops might be saved. Um, okay. One sort of example I have of a sort of institutionally catalyzed renewal in the life of the church in the United States and I'm going to bring it up because I've been thinking about it a lot lately, is World Youth Day in uh, my city of Denver in 1993, which I think uh, a lot of people would say was uh, was the catalyst for a lot of really, really good things that happened in the life of the church. And it's really interesting because, you know, uh, World Youth Day in Denver in 1993 was kind of criticized when it was happening. You know, there were lots of people who said it was too much money, and there were lots of people who said it was just logistically impossible and those kinds of things. But also, the liturgies were criticized. I've been thinking about this lately, like um, this uh, figure, big figure in the life of the church, Mother Angelica, sort of made her bones in a lot of ways criticizing the liturgies at um, World Youth Day. And, uh, you know, lots of people sort of remember this thing where she criticized, not just the liturgies, but some of the devotional things that were like, there were some weird things that happened, like a mime that did a Stations of the Cross or something, some kind of weird mime thing. And, uh, and for, for Mother Angelica, who founded the EWTN network, it was like a major point of, uh, you know, it was, it was problematic. And I think anybody who saw it would probably, have, and had two, two brain cells, would have said it was problematic, whatever the mime thing was. But it became like a, a real thing that she raised a lot of, uh, raised a lot of cane about and, and, uh, and, and, and was, you know, 
expressed a lot of frustration with the bishops about it. And in a certain way, like, you know, she was right that it, probably that the liturgy or devotional thing was, um, was, uh, problematic and, and probably it was worth someone pointing out that those are not the way that liturgies are supposed to go. Um, but at the same time, was there interpretive dance? Involved yeah. I mean, in I think that it was that kind of thing. It was like nineties, you know, kind of liturgical uh, dance, kind of miming stuff. Mm -hmm. And she called it out and, you know, made a whole to do about it. And I think probably she was right to make a whole to do about it, but that, um, that that thing which had bad liturgy um, or bad devotional practices or whatever it was, which had this thing which was probably discordant with the liturgical practice of the church, was also a catalyst for an extraordinary kind of renewal in the life of the church in the United States and responsible for a lot of vocations is just, I think, worth remembering. I don't know if I have the right conclusions about that yet, but it's just been something I've been chewing on that obviously the Holy Spirit was working in this thing, even while um, there were parts of it that were worth, you know, raising, you know, objection to or problems with or whatever that any kind of objection that's raised like that needs to be raised in the context of like sincere faith in the capacity of the holy spirit to um, to work through the institutional efforts of the church even when they're exercised imperfectly so there's that and i would agree with that i mean i was not at world youth day in Denver, no neither was in, i was like 11 in 93 but i know a lot of people who were and i know a lot of priests who can trace the origin of their vocation back to that day and the same with religious sisters and I, I hear what you're saying about there being some bad liturgy or even some banal liturgy. And I don't think that that's necessarily uncommon in the history of World Youth no, Day. No, prob- I'm sure not. Yeah. And I, I say this for two reasons. The first is exactly what you said about it. even if there's a lot of, you know, sort of sad hippie dad programming that doesn't you know is meant to be cool with the kids and perhaps doesn't actually land all that well with them it doesn't it it, if people are there with a sincerity of faith particularly gathered around the sacraments um i i think you're right that it's it's not an impediment to the holy spirit i mean it can also conversely i would say probably uh, um inspire liturgically inspire people the other direction i wonder if that bad stuff might oh that yeah the reason we have quite a lot of um members of the sort of more traditionally surgically minded thing are, you know, known to be demographically younger uh, than you might otherwise expect. And I wonder if many of it isn't because they're, you know, they had early exposure to weird stuff, really bad, cool dad liturgy. And they went the other way with that. And, you know, I, I just, I, I think it's worth, you know, asking the question of, you know, to what extent did, you know, many of the figures in the church who, who like to rage about, you know, well, these young traddies are, you know, they don't yeah. understand. They, they, you know, they don't know what they're doing. It's like, well, to what extent did maybe that Where did generation that yeah. rails against them cause that? Right. Um, and I think there's scope for self-reflection there. Um, but again, I, all of this is to say that I have been to several World Youth Days, and I have, I have almost always, uh, on every occasion, found some moment uh, in which I found myself sort of, you know, cringing a little bit at... Um, at the music or the liturgy or whatever else. Sure. But I have, for every moment of that, there have been four or five that have been moments of really sincere, deep appreciation for the the lived reality of the church in that moment, um, whether it's specifically gathered around the Bishop of Rome who was there, or just in a genuine appreciation of the reality of the church as a communion, not communion in the same way as we speak of communion in the Eucharist, but 
um, that, you know, the communion of saints is a real thing. Well, the church that, is in herself a sort of sacramental communion, to be sure. Yeah, I mean, there it is the mystical body of Christ. And to have an appreciation for that, that is born of uh, moments of lived experience, I think is an important one. And I hope that the Eucharistic revival that is going on in, ends up in Indianapolis. Indianapolis. For its, uh, I forgot the formal title, but we will call it Hootenanny. Um, <laughs> will... I have no doubt. We'll probably have a lot of similar aspects to it. I'm sure there will be moments where some parts of the crowd are going, I don't much care for this Well, it's song. a synthesized, or organized by a committee of people with disparate liturgical things, and and, um, and therefore it's just the reality of the church is that it's going to have a, right. a variety things of built liturgical by committee tend to look yeah, a certain Some way. of them are going to be fine. Maybe some things are going to be awesome, some things are going to be fine, and some things are going to be like, what the... Yeah, sure, for sure. Yeah. But I don't think that that will in any way be an impediment to the profundity of the experience for many people who attend. Yeah. And I don't think it will, cer I certainly don't think it is a limiting factor on the power of the Holy Spirit to act through a major event like that to inspire people. And maybe, and you've said this before, and I, and I feel the same way, which is, I really hope that we end up looking back on the culmination of the Eucharistic revival in, in Indianapolis in the same way that people look back look at back on world, world youth day in denver I just go you know something changed there in the life of the church of the united states that a generation uses that as a as a reference point both for their faith and for how they um lived their faith well i i, I think it's a reasonable expectation yeah i think that's what i'm driving at and uh, you know i think that's what i'm driving at and i don't know i i sort of do, what i know about sort of mother angelica's famous invective about world youth day in denver in 1993 was that it was a thing that sort of made her, put her on the map and ended up with her in, in a lot of debate with a lot of bishops. And I don't know what else she thought about Denver and World Youth Day in 1993. So there are certain limits to my example here. But the the reason I bring it up is because there can be a temptation when things like this are happening, sort of national moments like this Eucharistic revival moment, in which one can be tempted, I think, to um, to see the thing through the lens of imperfections or shortcomings or thing, even things which just are not, a, you know, to, to a person's preference. And, um, and in that light, become sort of cynical about the possibility or potential of the whole thing. And that kind of cynicism is something I think believers need to guard against. It's, it's um, it, to be sure, between now and the Indianapolis, what we'll call Hootenanny, there will be things done in the name of the Eucharistic Revival which are strange. There have already been. In fact, I've had an interview with a guy who, uh, who, who works at the OCCB, who's, who's working on stuff connected to the Eucharistic Revival, who said some things about the Eucharist that were very, very strange. I think he was... I, I think he was just sort of talking, but in an interview that he gave, he said that he could effectively tell, uh, and you could find this online, that he could tell by consumption when a host was consecrated or not. And that just does not seem to me to be likely realistic or, I mean, I think the guy just sort of overspoke or he said something that was just off, you know? Um, one can sort of look at the Eucharistic revival through the lens of cynicism and say, see, they're saying things, they're teaching things that are off and the liturgies are going to be weird and these kinds of things. And like solely see that to the exclusion of the possibility that in the church's sort of effort to um, inculcate ecclesial communion, God will be there in a particular way. And the Holy Spirit works through these things in a particular way, which are imperfect by virtue of our imperfection. Now, the fundamental focus of our journalism is public accountability in the life of the church, which means that if things are done in the context of the Eucharistic revival that are highly problematic, which is, you know, financially, morally, doctrinally, or otherwise, we'll probably, you know, we'll probably raise it. And we'll be inclined to be give the it kind of thing attention. that we'll give close attention to in one form or another, to be sure. And that's important. But there's a difference, I think, between sort of giving things close attention and urging or exhorting the church to act as, as, um, 
as she can and becoming so consumed by cynicism that one only sees um, uh, an effort through its shortcomings. We must guard against cynicism is my thing. Okay. Uh, you mean we shouldn't be cynical grumps? Is that what you're trying <laughs> Hey, listen. You get a you get a, you get a, a bar full of guys yeah, buying you drinks. Wear it, is it, yeah, that's right. Okay, we're going to talk about some other things uh, after a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Ed, this episode of the Pillar Podcast is sponsored by Seton Home Study School, which is an accredited school assisting homeschooling parents with academically excellent and authentically Catholic curriculum. Yes, it is. Uh, if you are considering your options about homeschooling and you are considering looking for a curriculum that incorporates Catholicism and the faith and the intellectual pursuit of the faith into every aspect of the curriculum, not just into a neat little box titled religion class, then Seton Home might be right for you. And you can check out more about it at seatonhome.org. Catholic parents have a lot of options and um, have to make a lot of uh, careful discernments about the best schooling decisions, and most of them are based upon knowing their child and knowing the needs of their child. Um, But it is worth checking out seatonhome.org to see whether Seton Home Study School, which aims to help parents as the primary educators of their children, is right for you and your family. That's seatonhome.org. We're back, Ed. Yes, we are. How you doing? I might need another beer in a minute, but yeah, I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> good. I'm very glad to hear that. Look, I'm drinking um, Colorado beer. I thought you'd be happy. I... You are. That's great. I'm very, very happy for you. I'm very glad about that. Uh, Ed, there's much going on in the life of the church right now, and what we are going to talk about uh, for a minute at least is uh, the latest from the Vatican trial. Oh, joy. Um, well, all right. There is, there is, in fact, no latest in the Vatican trial itself, properly speaking. The court is okay. Well, recess. then let's move on. Nah, ah, 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 nah. Nice try. Um, there, there has, however, been some news in the in the orbit of the Vatican trial this week. the The court is currently in recess. I think they meet back uh, just over a week's time, the first week of July. At which point, the the defense will turn over the football, so to speak, and the prosecution will start calling witnesses. Giuseppe Pignatone, the chief magistrate, has uh, said, I think, today in Rome, uh, something to the effect of people should start thinking about the witnesses that are going to be called. And I I gather, I've heard this informally, I don't know how true this is, that the witness list might prove quite extensive for the mm. prosecution, which, yeah. if that I is true, that I will there be could, That they're expecting heavy. more than 100 witnesses, potentially. Yeah. Is that just an effort to stymie the thing? I mean, so I read that the prosecution is expecting to call more than 100 witnesses. Is that... No, if the prosecution is doing it, it's not an effort to stymie the thing. Is it an effort to sort of overwhelm the defense attorneys? I mean, what's going on here? No, I don't think it's an attempt to overwhelm the defense attorneys. I am choosing so far absent evidence to the contrary, and Lord knows they may produce it, um, to believe that this is an act of professionalism and an act of taking things seriously. Uh, you know, we've, we've heard from the defendants, and they have painted... Uh, a very exculpatory picture of themselves and all of the weird and wonderful things that they got up to with hundreds of millions of euros of the church's funds. And it would be nice to hear from people who had primary knowledge of the same events who might take a different view. It would be nice to hear from people who, for example, work or worked in the Vatican Secretariat for the Economy, who mm-hmm. might be able to give expert testimony on and I'm just spitballing here, the kind of regulations that the Vatican has on these things that were brought in by Pope Francis that, you know, might have been broken in some of these deals. Yes. One might hear from, for example, officials at the IOR 
otherwise sometimes known as the Vatican Bank, who were pressured into trying to approve a mortgage. Uh, which is not an allegation, which is there's do documentation the, the that we have and have reported that, that they, they were, were lent on trying by to approve it. Cardinal Paralene and Archbishop uh -huh. Inapara to approve a 150 yeah. million euro loan to finance this whole goat rodeo. And they said no. And it's also a matter of documented proof in Pinapara's own hand, or at least um, evidence from his close collaborators and testimony he's himself given in court that basically he ordered a punitive investigation into the president of the IOR when they turned him down for a loan. I mean, you know, there's plenty to hear about that you could just call two dozen witnesses I could think of off the top of my head from who work in the Holy See. You go outside of that and you start talking about financial officials, people who work in banks in Switzerland who, you know, were part of the mechanics of getting this lawyers who worked for the Holy See in all of this or weren't consulted, people who could give expert testimony on, well, is this a normal way of doing business? Is this how you normally structure an investment like this? Are these normal terms of separation? All of that sort of stuff is up for grabs. And like I said, we've heard from the defendants, but there are all sorts of, you know, the, the prosecution dropped a 200-page indictment. And I would say so far we've heard testimony from the defendants related to maybe six pages of it in terms of you know the substance of the allegations there's so much in there that's left to discuss so this is all by the way not what happened this week which i will get on to in just a second but yeah i i am choosing to believe that the idea that there could be more than 100 prosecution witnesses means they are suiting up they know that they have everything to prove and they are aiming to prove it professionally yeah. and that would yeah. be great um yeah. but that's not what happened this week jd what happened this week was two interesting things the first is our, our old friend uh, and sometime correspondent, uh, Raffaele Mincioni, the ah. gentleman who uh, managed a couple hundred million in um, funds for the Secretary of State for a period of years. And uh, as part of the terms of separation between the Secretary of State and him, uh, sold them the building at 60 Sloan Avenue in London, has filed a lawsuit against Credit Suisse, the Swiss bank, and Citco, which is a let's say, an enigmatic financial institution that I could bore you about, but we will not for the purposes of this podcast. And he's suing them in Luxembourg. And the substance of his lawsuit is that he was, uh, his lawyers say, in his company, WRM Group, uh, willfully misled uh, yes. about the nature and origin of the money that he was, that the Vatican was giving him through Credit Suisse to invest for them. Uh, and we spent a little bit of time thinking about that. Why would it matter? Why is he, he's saying that Credit Suisse was not straightforward with him about the kind of Vatican money that he was investing. Why would it matter? He's the investment guy. He takes the money, he invests it. Well, as far as we can tell, it seems that his claim is basically, if Credit Suisse had told him that he was investing Peter's Pence funds and funds derived from other, um, from other charitable collections of the Holy See and funds secured uh, by, you know, funds secured by Peter's Pence collections, um, he would have known that the entire thing might well become um, a public relations cluster, as it were. Um, he might well know that the whole thing would kind of blow up in his face as, um, as it has. He might well know that there would be a lot of attention and scrutiny paid to what the Holy See was doing with Peter Spence money, because I think most people think that for every dollar that goes, many people think that for every dollar that goes into Peter Spence, you know, a dollar goes out to um, some sort of apostolic project in the developing world. And, and the Holy See has said, well, we never said that, but there's a whole to do about it now. There's lawsuits in the United States. There's coverage of it. All of this stuff is happening. And as far as we can tell, what Mincioni is saying is, hey, you guys didn't tell me that I was investing Peter's Pence money, and now I'm in this whole public relations problem, aside from my legal problems, and that's on you, and it hurts my ability to make money. To the is tune that right? 
half a billion euros. Is what That's what he's asking for is 500 million euros. Yeah. I have a couple of thoughts about this. The first is uh, everyone keeps talking about, oh, well, charitable funds like Peter's Pence were used for this sort of stuff. First of all, we've been reporting for years that actually what they did was they used accounts at Swiss banks like Credit Suisse that had money in it for things like Peter's Pence and the Pope's mm -hmm. actual private charitable discretionary fund, which is not Peter's Pence. It's a separate thing. And they basically used those accounts as collateral to get loans from the banks to invest with Mincioni. And it's not the same thing. Right. You know, you could argue it's distinction without difference, but it's not. Um, are you still effectively gambling with, you know, charitable funds? Yes, but you haven't actually given him Peter's Pence money to, to you know, play the markets with, so to speak. Right. Um, and the reason I consider that important is, well, who did that? The Secretary of State did that. And why did they do that? They did it mm -hmm. for a very particular reason, which is they didn't want people to know that's what they were doing. Yeah. They wanted people to not be aware that that's what they were doing. And we reported this again for years, that this was part of a dodge to keep their entire multi-hundred million euro relationship with Mincioni off the ledger sheet mm -hmm. and, on, and away from the prying eyes of people, the Secretariat for the Economy under mm -hmm. Cardinal Pell. Um, mm -hmm. We've reported that for years. Cardinal Pell in his prison diaries has actually confirmed that reporting. Right. Mm -hmm. in, so, you know it's everyone keeps saying shorthand you know well they use peter's pence like well no they actually didn't and the reason they didn't is itself an important thing because that maneuver that they used is prohibited in vatican financial regulations brought in by pope francis so again yeah. this is the sort of you know minutia of the sort it's like well no this is evidence potentially of a crime allegedly yeah. right so as for, you know, Mincioni saying, well, this is Sitco and Credit Suisse's problem, and they should have told me, and they should have been aware. I don't know that I buy that. But really what I think this is for Mincioni is he has been forum shopping for years, uh, yeah. at least two years now, for a place to basically sue his way back to a good reputation. Yeah. Um, in June of 2020, shortly after the arrest of Gianluigi Torzi uh, in the Vatican, where he then subsequently skipped bail, uh, and yep. the Vatican's official state media described Mincioni's Management. Well, he skipped bail because they let him walk out the door before his money showed up. Well, yeah, they basically took yeah. a rubber check. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But anyway, um, that, that same week, Vatican state media put out a long story reporting on the situation, and they, they characterized Mincioni's handling of investments for the Holy See as a conflict of interest and speculative. Some of us who've been writing on the exact nature of those investments for a number of years would say they do certainly appear to be conflicts mm -hmm. of interest and speculative Indeed. Indeed. um so there's that so he's been freaking out since then and he tried to sue um he tried to sue the secretary of state in the uk seeking declaratory relief that he acted in good faith in all his dealings with them in november last year the uk judge basically put that in the deep freeze and said mm -hmm. no you're the subject of an ongoing criminal procedure in vatican city and you don't get to sue your prosecution in the uk while that project right. while that case is ongoing so no right. he's tried to uh, sue his way to uh, a rehabilitation in Switzerland, where lots of bank accounts with millions and millions of euros of his funds have been frozen at the request of Vatican authorities by the Swiss banking authorities. And they too have said, no dice, Charlie, you're on trial in the Vatican, and we will talk when that process has concluded. Yeah. So I think suing a Swiss bank in Luxembourg at this point is really his last roll of the dice to find a court somewhere that will take his case and allow him to sort of go on the front foot in legal proceedings. Well, that's Vatican. interesting because no one who sues someone for $500 million is hoping to get a verdict of 500 million euros at the end. They're hoping to get a settlement. So what he's hoping 
is that a judge will give him enough uh, en enough of a runway to sort of force Credit Suisse into a go-away settlement that allows him to say, see, they admitted that the Holy See, you know, their settlement indicates that the Holy See uh, defrauded me or that Credit Suisse defrauded me on behalf of the Holy See and that I'm a patsy in all of this. I mean, it, when you ask for $500 million, I think what you have to hope is that you're going to get a 25 million euro go away check, which is a lot of money. Um, and you're going to be able to use that to uh, for a claim of moral credibility. Yes. Don't, don't you think? Yes. And I think the moral credibility claim is is really all he cares about here. Is yeah, he exactly. wants to be able to say he acted. So he faith. can even settle for an undisclosed amount, right? Settle for an undisclosed amount. Everybody signed NDAs. The guy walks away with a, a million euro, but more to the point, he gets to wa walk away to say, I forced Credit Suisse and you know, by extension, the Holy See to settle when I threatened to um, blow the whistle on the way in which they defrauded me and many other people. I right. think that's what he's after. Yeah. Yes. I don't think he's going to get it. But <laughs> Well, I mean, I don't think he's going to get it because I think the thing's going to be dismissed. Yes. I think that, well, yeah. I don't think it'll be dismissed. I think it, the same thing will happen in Luxembourg as happened in Switzerland and the UK, which is the judge will hear initial arguments and he'll say, there's an ongoing criminal this is the subject of an ongoing criminal process in right. another jurisdiction that we recognize, and we are not going to have our own civil lawsuit procedure override or contradict or attempt to circumvent that criminal procedure. That can run its course, and then we'll talk. So yeah. we'll, we'll see what happens. But I think this is, as I said, my 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 read of this is this is Mr. Mincioni continuing to forum shop for anybody who will take his case and hear him out. Um, yeah, there is obviously one place that has taken his case and is hearing him out, and that is Vatican City, and he's given evidence there. And I suspect we will we will see him back to answer more questions in the future. And uh, I wish him and everyone else involved in that trial the very very best of luck. And with um, all sincerity, may the truth come out. Great. I want to talk about one more thing because we're running out of time here. Um, okay. I want to talk about Cardinal Casper the Conservative. Ah, Casper the Friendly Cardinal Ghost. Cardinal Casper, 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 Casper the Friendly Casper, Ghost of Vatican II. The Tabula Rosa, right? Casper, upon whom any all things can be written and all interpretations can be made. Cardinal Casper, long sort of perceived as uh, as the arch, uh, long perceived as the sort of arch liberal interlocutory nemesis of Benedict the Sixteenth, who had very sort of sharp uh, theological debates with uh, with uh, with then Cardinal Ratzinger now decades ago, um, has, uh, has uh, a, a German cardinal who I think is in his 90s, has come out swinging against the synodal way, the German path of synodal reform, which is basically um, bishops and lay people getting together and voting on proposals for rather significant amendments to uh, Catholic doctrine and discipline. You have your hand up. And not for the first time either. He did this... Not for the first time. Last year, about this but time. This but this week, Cardinal Casper gave a speech that I have in front of me um, at a, at a, something uh, an online study day called the Newer Beginning, um, which is uh, sort of people who are raising concerns effectively about the synodal way. And Casper said uh, some very interesting things about reform. He said, um, "Reform means bringing the church back into shape, the shape that Jesus Christ wanted and gave to the church." Christ is the cornerstone. No one can lay another. He's always the keystone that holds everything together. Church reform does not turn the church into a disposable asset that can be needed and redesigned to suit the situation. True reform is not about being as contemporary as possible, but about being as Christ-like as possible. Now, Cardinal Casper is is in a very interesting place here. There are points on which he would probably disagree with many theologians about what precisely the Lord wanted the shape of the church to be, and sort of arguments that he would make. But Casper is arguing, is becoming an apologetist, excuse me, an apologist for 
the objectivity of the deposit of faith. What Casper is doing here is not saying sort of, I agree with every single thing that Ratzinger has ever said about what the church should be. In fact, we know from his history, he has a lot of disagreements with Ratzinger about what the Lord wanted the church to be. Um, but those disagreements used to be about that. What does the Lord want the church to be? What does the deposit of faith mean? In the postmodern period, those, de- those debates have become, in what way is the church a space in which we can express um, our values? And in what way can the practice of the church be, sh- be reshaped or reconfigured or reimagined or reinterpreted to express contemporary values. It's a totally different thing. Casper gave a speech which said that true reform of the church is to go back to the, the, the sources of ecclesial identity, go back to the early sources of the church. He's calling for a resource model renewal to say we need to look at what the earliest fathers of the church understood the church to be. We need to look at what scripture understood the church to be and then make sure that the church is that. That was, by the way, the project of the Second Vatican Council. And he says reform is, is not... Um, uh, adapting the church to uh, our difficulties, but adapting um, our our expression of Christ, the message of the kingdom of God, to the difficulties of modern life. The identity of the church, he says, is given to us in Jesus Christ in all times and for all times. He's quoting Hebrews here. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Casper is arguing for a synod which is, again, rooted in the deposit of faith. Spiritual events, he said, um, he says even liturgical events. And it's a fascinating kind of intervention from a person who has long sort of been perceived to be uh, uh, sort of uh, on the on the liberal side of the ecclesiastical uh, balance sheet. Absolutely. Uh, what I also found fascinating about that speech was what he said about synods in the abstract, mm-hmm. not just the German one in particular, because, of course, uh, for people who didn't follow him as a theologian uh, in the Benedictine JP2 years, but who perhaps first came to know Cardinal Casper as a figure because he was a he he was when Pope Francis sort of came out of the conclave, Casper was his go-to guy. Casper was right. his theological inspiration. You know, he was constantly quoting books of Cardinal Casper when he was talking about intercommunion yeah. with Protestants and the limits of the possibility of that. He would say, "I defer to Cardinal Casper. He's the guy I trust on this." When Amoris Laetitia came out, it was Cardinal Casper who was doing the rounds explaining it, backing it up, saying this is a great thing, this is where we should be going. He was, you know, he was in many ways, um, he was to the theology and ecclesiology of the first five years of Pope Francis's uh, pontificate, I would say, what Gianfranco Ghirlanda has become to the second five. Mm -hmm. And what I found interesting about this is Casper took a real swipe at what I would say is the publicly understood ecclesiology of Pope Francis in this that he talked about the idea of a permanent synod being nonsense, that you can't have a permanent synod because a synod is by its nature a temporary moment. It is a particular thing to answer a particular question at a particular time and to speak about sort of permanent synods and perpetual um, synods going on for forever. So this this isn't what a synod is. That's a complete, you know, misunderstanding and misapplication of the word. And, I mean, obviously he was directly pointing this at the German bishops who have, you know, as the, um, what do we call the Pontifical Council for Legislative Texts these days? I think it's still. You think it's still? Okay. What the PCLT have said the German bishops got up to with, are getting up to with their, their synodal veg, is they say, you, you seem to be thinking you're having a particular council and calling it a synod, right. and it's neither. You're not having either of those, yeah. because you don't have anything like the competence you seem to think you have. And so Casper was very clearly talking about that first, but... I mean, what he said about, you know, the idea that you can't just make the word synod mean whatever you want it to mean, 
yeah. uh, I thought was also very important. And it shows that, you know, people often tend to think that, you know, it's a very static, very un, um, uh, very unmoving, unmoving, not very open to conversation circle around Pope Francis. But if Cardinal Casper is saying this, I think it shows a really interesting uh, aspect to the kind of uh, point-counterpoint dialogue that could be going yeah. on in, in the Pope's orbit, which I think is great. And it's something that was very normal under previous Popes, which is why you had someone like Casper yeah. being in the College of Cardinals under Popes like Benedict and Benedict, JP2, who, who disagreed with him on so much. Yeah. So, well, and here he's just arguing. I mean, I think you're right, Ed. What Casper is doing is arguing for the ground rules of the debate. And he, he cites, you know, a couple months ago, a bunch of U.S. bishops signed a letter to the German bishops, sort of open letter, which criticized the synodal path and its foundations. As many and African Card bishops as Americans, I oh, think. Oh, as many. Yeah, there were a lot of, uh, it was sort of generated in the United States, and then a lot of Africans and some Europeans signed it and some South Americans, but it was sort of a, generated in the United States and then got some international support. Casper cites it. He says, look, the, he, he, took, he calls it the original sin of the synodal path. He said, the original sin of the synodal path is that this is not a debate about the gospel. This is not us trying to, you know, starting with the foundations of the gospel, trying to unpack what it means. It's that we're bringing in, he says, other sources of wisdom. And he says that will, um, th if this is not sort of rooted in the question of what the church, uh, uh, you know, of what Christ intended for his church, he says it will break the neck of the synod. Again, he's arguing, as you say, for a, a notion of what the synod is, and then he's arguing it, it, it's an apologetic for, for objectivity. As I said, he's arguing for the ground rules of an argument rooted in the sort of root sources of Christian revelation. And uh, and so, yeah, there would be lots of things which I'm sure he would disagree with the signatories of that thing about, but he's saying, let's set a Christian fence around this Christian conversation about what the Christian church is. That way we can stay focused on what the Holy Father said the synodal way was supposed to be about, which is about an orientation towards evangelization, instead of a thing which becomes sort of self-reflection and fatuous and, and just sort of focused on the kind of accommodation to the values of the contemporary culture. It's a fascinating intervention or set of interventions from Casper, who is, you know, it shows how much the Overton window has shifted in a certain way that this guy who long was sort of... Um, pushing back on various things in the Holy See, and, you know, the, the name of God is, is mercy, his book that Francis cited. A lot of theologians have real criticisms about his understanding of the nature of mercy, but he's doing this sort of thing of trying to say, this is what the sources of faith and revelation say about what mercy is, and let's have it out. And, um, and what he's doing now is sort of stepping back and saying, whoa, 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 I'm accustomed to raising things in the church that you know, uh, people don't like, or officials don't like, or the magistrate don't like. He had this big debate, as I say, with Ratzinger about what the church was, that was sort of Ratzinger used the power of the CDF to support his side of the debate, you know. So he's accustomed to that kind of thing, but he's saying, whoa, 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 theology is done in the context of the sources of revelation. It's not a sort of free-for-all about something called, you know, humanity or something like that. And it's it shows, again, how much the window has shifted about what's discussed as a sort of as a set of Catholic ideas or what might be discussed as are these Catholic ideas about what the church is or not. And it's really, I think, really important. We haven't written about it, but I'm working myself into probably writing an analysis about it in the next day or two. Yeah. Well, you say how far the Overton window has shifted. I'd say how far from the herd the Germans have really strayed. If Walter yeah, Casper okay, okay. is somewhere way off right, to your yeah. right, you've, yeah. you look over your shoulder because you're way over the line. But it's important. It really speaks to, um, you know, the notion of not just these guys are arguing that the gospel says something different than what the church says the gospel is. Casper's point is, these guys are not arguing from the gospel. And that is a different thing and an important thing. And, yes. uh, and one, like, as you say, to properly frame the pathway of the German synodal path. Yes. That's really important. It is really important. It's also 
very, very interesting. It is. We got to stop talking about it, though, because we have got to wrap up, my friend. We do. But before we do, would you would you care to play a game? I would like to play a game. Is it a quick game? A quick game is a fun game. It can be a quick game. Um, it, okay, it is, as it. you probably know, we are recording this on June 23rd, and uh, it will it will air, quote unquote, tomorrow, tomorrow, June 24th. And what do June 23rd and 24th have in common this year, J.D.? Uh, they are solemnities. It is very, very rare, very rare that you have back-to-back solemnities. Today is the solemnity of the Nativity of John the Baptizer, and tomorrow is the solemnity of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. But you're partially right. What I was actually going for is both are, properly speaking, days in which you celebrate, we celebrate the Nativity of John the Baptist, because it is, as you say, displaced from tomorrow because of the because of the feast yeah. of the most sacred unless Heart. you live in a place where you where um where uh john the baptist is your patron like the the art the archdiocese of saint john's in newfoundland has the patron of john the baptist and so they're celebrating john the baptist on the 24th and the sacred heart of jesus on the 23rd so Precisely. it's a very you can read at pillarcatholic.com about this sort of very interesting liturgical calendar anomaly that we're in we're in something of a liturgical black hole you can't and um anyway saint john the baptist was obviously uh, famously decapitated at the end of his life. He was. Um, and I thought we might have in his honor a little quiz for you on, uh, I'm calling off with their heads. <laughs> Famous decapitations. Basically, yeah. That's awesome. All right. I love it. Well, so uh, start for 10, JD. Um, what other headless saints had their feast this week? What other headless saints had their feast this week? St. Thomas More and St. John Fisher. Correct. Correct. Bishop of Rochester. What's St. John Fisher? The Bishop of Rochester? He was, in fact, the, the Bishop of Rochester. He was offered promotion many times. He was one of those weird people who who seems to think that a bishop should be wed to his diocese, and he was not yeah. at all cool about moving. And, and St. Thomas More, of course, is the St. Thomas More of it all. Indeed. An excellent lawyer. Um, and, and how many, J.D., uh, martyrs altogether did Henry VIII have executed, including uh, Saints Thomas More and John Fisher? Uh uh, well, hundreds, I presume. I mean, well, I yeah, but would you care to put a figure on it? I mean, you can't just say hundreds. It's like saying, how much oh. money did the, whole, the Secretary of State lose? I don't know, hundreds of millions. I mean, you know. But hundreds is right, not thousands? No, hundreds, yeah. I mean, e- even okay, Henry VIII didn't manage to get get to four figures. 800. Uh, no, you, you overshot there. It's, uh, I think we, the church. 400. Cur- yes, you're, you're pretty much there. 400, that's what I meant to say. 430, I think, 430, are recognized yeah. as martyrs yeah. of Henry VIII. Isn't it 431, actually, if you count... Um, count who? You, you know, uh, the, the one guy. The one guy? No, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's, you're right. It just is 430. My mistake. I just... Okay. Okay. All right. Um, in, in literature, J.D. In literature. Uh, presumably drawn as a caricature of Henry VIII's daughter, Bloody Queen Bess, uh, the Queen of Hearts in Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland is always heard to shout off with his, her, or their heads... Uh-huh. Um, but in Alice in Wonderland, who is the first person whom the Queen of Hearts orders executed by having off with their head? Who is the first person to be yes. ordered executed by the Queen of Hearts yes. in Alice in Wonderland? Correct. Uh, the book or the movie? The, the book. Good. I'm glad. I didn't Do think I need to make you put your hands over your head when you answer these questions? No, I worry I'm you're just Googling. asking a question. I'm, I'm not Googling because I, I wouldn't even know what to Google, really. Uh, I would not know what to Google. The rabbit? The rabbit? The rabbit? Uh, no. No, the answer is actually Alice. The, oh, In the book, okay. the Queen of Hearts, famously the playing cards are painting the roses red. And mm-hmm. then when the Queen arrives, she, they all flop down. And the Queen asks Alice, she says, who are they? And she says, I don't know, because they're all laying face down, so she can't tell which right. cards they are. And the Queen is vexed by this response and orders off at Alice's head. Um, speaking of off 
with his head. We're JD. through the looking glass now. This is um, this is kind of a stock phrase, isn't it? Off with his head, off with their head, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Where in literature do we actually derive this phrase from? Do you know who who actually coined the phrase "off with his head"? Which writer? The Bard. Ed. It was the Bard. Correct. It was Shakespeare. <laughs> would you care to Would you care to double your money and tell me what play? Oh boy, yeah, sure would. Would love to, absolutely. Uh, Henry. A Henry. It was a was it a Henry? It was a Henry. Most people think it's Richard the Third because there's a very oh, dramatic moment in which Richard the Third just yell off with his head. Yes, but indeed. But it first comes up in a Henry. It does. It comes up in Henry the Sixth, Part Three. Um, mm-hmm. In which it's the death of the Duke of York, and his last words, of course, are "Open thy gate of mercy, gracious God, my soul flies through these wounds to seek out thee." And and Queen Margaret is standing over him and orders to his dead body, "Off with his head! Off with his head! Set it on York Gate so that York may overlook right. York." Um, so you know the interesting thing about the um, Duke of York, Ed, a lot of people don't know this. You know he had actually ten thousand men. He did. He marched them to the top of a very tall hill. He did. So you know you might have known that scene, but I I knew that. Yeah. So very good. Well done there, uh, JD. You are, as you never tire of reminding everyone, um, pretty au fait with the scriptures, and <laughs> oh my gosh. wow, boy, you know I'm going to get whatever this is wrong. Uh, whose head did Judith cut off? Whose head did Judith cut off? Yeah, she drove a tent spike through his temple and then lopped his head off as he was nailed to the ground. Who, whose head? No, the problem, that? you know, what the problem is What's this: that? Judith is um, what uh, what in my in for much of my life, Ed, I would have referred to as a Catholic book. Uh-huh, and, uh huh. Yes. Therefore, <laughs> coming as it does from the Septuagint instead of, I guess, the Masoretic text or whatever it is. Are, I, um, are you I, suggesting I, I, I didn't carefully pick this example to make sure it was <laughs> not evangelical have. Protestant friendly? I knew you would have, but I, uh, you know, thank you, um, Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli was formed in the texts of the Masoretic text, and therefore I'm unable at the moment to provide you with an answer about who Judith um, had cut off. Let's just say, Mr. Judith. No, it was Holofernes. Holofern, yeah, okay, right, yeah, right. He, uh, yeah, he was living in a cave going by the name Holofen, and uh, no, no one realized no, that. No, Holofernes was okay. not doing any of those things. Uh, he ran to Judith's tent to to seek, having lost the battle, uh, he, he ran seeking shelter, and she nailed his head to the ground. It had tent, nothing to do with it. Yeah. yeah. It, it's a great story. It's one to read your children. Um, I, I actually think I will. I'll put it on yeah. Okay, uh, moving on, J.D. Who was, can you tell me please, Giovanni Battista Bugatti? Boy, I know that name. Oh, man. Can you give me a hint? I mean, it's really just on the... It's, yeah, he was an Italian. I don't... You're giggling like a schoolgirl right now. He uh, might have I'd, been from New Jersey. I'm just helping clarify. I don't... Was he... Oh, was he the last... This is my guess. Hands up. Was he the last executioner of the Papal States? You are absolutely correct. Well done. Wow. Giovanni Battista Bugatti was the final executioner of the Papal States. He was in office from a very long time, 1796 to 1864, dying th- five years later in 1869. Um, again, double your money, JD. How many heads did he take? Officially, I will tell you, a slightly higher number were executed in the Papal States, but we don't count two of them because... Uh, they they didn't actually die by beheading, and this is an off with their heads game. So I need yeah. the number of actual heads 
Right. Giovanni was it 431? For some reason, that number sort of sticks out for me historically when it comes to Catholic beheadings, but I can't remember why. 430? 430? It was not 430 no, or 431. Okay, yeah. okay. Uh, 60, 60, 68. 68 years was how long he served. 68 years was how long he served. He did a head a year. It was his Christmas Christmas gift. No, uh, he averaged closer to seven a year. He, he weighed Ooh, in with wow. a final total of 514. Wow, that's a lot. He had 516 executions, but one was hung and quartered by other oh. officials, and one was what? shot. And so he didn't oh. count them in his book. I wonder why they did the shooting. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, and finally, J.D., uh, back to literature and a little closer to home for you uh, geographically. In The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, who is the Headless Horseman? In The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, who is the Headless Horseman? Yes. He rides. Uh, he rides. He does. It's right there in the but name. But what kind of horseman is he and why was he headless? He was... Uh, who wrote that? Ichabod Crane? Is that? No, Ichabod is Crane is Ichabod a character Crane, who's Irving Ichabod Berlin. Crane is the character. No. Ichabod Crane it's is a Irving, sort of bookish... Washington Irving. Not Irving, but Washington Irving. Ichabod Crane, who uh, is a kind of... Uh, who also invented apples or something like that. Ichabod Crane is um, kind of a bookish guy and uh, nervous, and he's walking, and the headless horseman is a... It, the he, the headless horseman was, and you know this was. You kind of have to read into the text to know this because a lot of people think this is not true. The headless horseman was a sort of manifested representation of Washington Irving's feelings about his own father, who was always distant from him in certain ways, and uh, and so he manifested that in a kind of nighttime headlessness. It was, of course, if you want to just stay at the narrative level, as it were, then he was a. Revolutionary War. I can see your eyes flicking rider. across the screen. You no, know there's that, no right? screen here. There's no screen here. I'm just talking. What you see my eyes do is lying. I'm just making stuff up. Um, <laughs> was he a Revolutionary War guy? Uh, well, I mean, yes, in the sense that okay. it's from that he period was a Revolutionary of time. War guy. Yeah, of course. He was uh, Paul no, the, Revere. It was Paul freaking Revere. That's oh, I, I like that. That's a uh, that's an out of the field. It? No, it was uh, the uh, the spectral apparition of a headless Hessian mercenary. Oh, Decapitated by a cannonball at the Battle of White Plains, Nuevo Jersey. Oh, uh, that's interesting. White Plains is in New York, though. Is it? Yeah. Oh. Okay. Still well, closer to my yeah. neck of the woods. Washington Irving, also from New York. Um, I was recently in, um, in, in Brooklyn with my wife, and I had very recently before that read a, a, a couple of World War, excuse me, a couple of Revolutionary War histories. And so, like... She was a little bit frustrated because I kept sort of just narrating the Battle of Brooklyn wherever we went, which is a fascinating <laughs> tale of American um, I know nothing about the I didn't know there was a Battle of Brooklyn. I will look that up. Well, we, we didn't do too well in Brooklyn, and so all of the— No one all, does too well in Brooklyn, J.D. Yeah, when Washington's troops were pinned down, they, they snuck away basically in the middle of the night by a sort of silent row across the river to get out of, to get out of there. Yeah. Washington seemed to do a lot of nighttime rowing with yeah, his arm. Washington, he did. He did. It was his main tactic. They're like, uh, they're like, hey, Washington, we need to take this fort. And he's like, okay, well, I need rowboats and the cover of nightfall. And they're like, it's not near a river or anything, man. He's like, this is what I do. This is this is our play. I I have this play. I have wooden teeth. I'm I want you to follow me. And and curiously, they were. This is why Washington. A lot of people don't realize this. Basically, a lot of people wanted to fire Washington for the whole of his tenure as the as the commander he of the Revolutionary War. He was fired by the British Army twice. 
Yeah, he did not have such a good record there. I mean, Washington parlayed some very, very big defeats as a British Army officer into he was he was tenacious, um, tenaciously self-promoting, and so he basically parlayed getting uh, getting his um, Washingtonian ass kicked rather regularly into becoming the commander in chief of the American Armed Forces. And none of the other generals like that, and they were always running. So anyway, that's neither here nor there. But I run. anyway, well, I, I hope you enjoyed our little. I hope I, I did too, and it, there's a tie-in because here we are talking about history and literature and all of those things tinged with the faith. And as it happens, this episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by Seton Home Study School. If you wonder whether Seton Home Study School is right for you, check it out at setonhome.org. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor in Chief, JD Flynn, joined by my podcasting partner from his undisclosed location in a bunker, Ed Condon. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira, and we will be back when the day is new. 